Good morning. He is risen. We're so glad that you chose to spend Easter with us. We usually refer to it as Resurrection Sunday, but I found that when I'm greeting people, and I have to say, Happy Resurrection Sunday, it's just a little too long. So Easter, Resurrection Sunday, whatever we call it, is a day that we celebrate the Lord's resurrection from the dead. I want to thank the worship team for doing a wonderful job. Uh, They preached a sermon through those words. I, I hope you had the opportunity to read along and sing along and see that there's so much truth in the hymns and the songs that we sing. And in addition to that, we have a little bit of time this morning to be in God's Word. So, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis in chapter 22. Genesis 22. We're taking a a little break from our regular study in the book of Revelation to spend some time looking at what is a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, well, what in the world are we doing in the book of Genesis on Easter Sunday? Well, the thing that I know is that Paul taught that according to the scriptures, Christ was raised. Christ died and he rose again, and he's coming again. That truth is in the scriptures, but remember that when Paul taught that, they didn't have a New Testament. They had an Old Testament. And it's in the Old Testament that we find the truth of the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sometimes predicted and prophesied, and sometimes pictured through an object lesson, sometimes pictured through an account or a story that doesn't seem to have anything to do with the resurrection. And yet you'll see, as we go through the scripture today, it has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So with that, let's open in prayer and we'll get into the study today. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our families and friends, and we thank you for our church family, and that we can be together here today in your word, celebrating the resurrection, celebrating this hope that we have in you. And Lord, we are grateful. We are grateful for your many blessings. We are thankful for the things that you give to us, but also to the health and the friends and family we have. And so we're just grateful, we're thankful, and we're looking forward to hearing from you today through the study of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. We read in verse 1 that sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This is perhaps one of the most disturbing scriptures we teach in Sunday school. (laughs) This father is commanded by God to do the unthinkable. Actually, to do something that would be contrary to everything God teaches us in his word. What is this all about? Well, if you've Known the Lord for five minutes, you've known this, you don't always understand what God is doing. Many times what God does is beyond our understanding. It's so far out there that we think, this can't be true, this can't be something that God would possibly ask me to do. Now, God never violates his word. He never contradicts the word he's given us. But sometimes it seems like it. Sometimes things don't make sense. In our world today, a lot of things that happen and are happening don't seem to make any sense at all. 
And yet I can assure you, God makes sense. We'll see when we get to the end of this account that it all makes sense. But here the Lord is testing Abraham's faith. Anyone here ever had a situation where their faith was tested? My goodness, that seems to be a regular occurrence in our lives, where what we believe comes into conflict with what we see and what we experience or what we think or what we feel. Well, this is the case here. And I want to give you a little recap because you have to understand what Abraham was being asked to do was, 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 was incredible because not only was the Lord calling him to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering, which the Jews did, well, they weren't even really Jews yet. These were the people of God. This is Abraham, even before the law was given. They were the Israelites, but not even yet because Israel hadn't been born. So when we look at this, this is the people of God, the father of the faith, Abraham, called to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Isaac was the long-awaited fulfillment of the Lord's promises to Abraham and to Israel, to the people of Israel, his descendants. You see, Abraham had been promised by the Lord that he would have many descendants. One little problem, he didn't have any children. And because he didn't have any children and he was older, in the scripture, it seems that the promises of God don't make sense. You're going to see that that is a reoccurring theme in our text today, that God doesn't always make sense. So as we look at this in the scriptures, in the book of Genesis, He's told he would have many descendants, and he was promised over and over again. Let me give you a little recap. When the Lord first called him from Ur of the Chaldeans in what is today Iraq, he was promised he would have many descendants. When the Lord reassured him in the land of Canaan at the age of 75 that he would have many descendants, it didn't seem likely. When the Lord confirmed his covenant with him before the age of 85, it didn't seem likely. In fact, it seemed less likely. When the Lord changed his name from Abram to Abraham, at the age of 99, it seemed impossible. But then when the Lord confirmed his promise within the next year, everything changed. And the things that God says are possible are possible because with him all things are possible. So he ultimately received the Lord's promise of his son at the age of 100. Now I know what you're thinking. That's fantastic. That doesn't seem possible. Well, for one thing, things were a little different early on in human history. People did live longer. They stayed younger longer. The genetic mutations and the environment were such that people lived longer and were able to have children into their older years. However, even at this point, this is impossible. You see, when God gets involved in an impossible situation, the impossible becomes possible. And with man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so the Lord, after having blessed him, brought him through 25 years of promises, fulfills the promise, he has a son. And then what does the Lord do? Something seemingly contradictory to everything that's happened over the last many years. Take that son I promised to give you that was impossible to give you that you now have and take that son of impossibility made possible and sacrifice him, give him back to me. I can admit that doesn't make any sense. But this man had learned to trust God over 25 years in the impossible. He had learned 
that when God says something's possible, it simply is possible. So the Lord takes his son, or asks Abraham to take his son Isaac, to a place called Mount Moriah. Now, I want to just kind of walk you through a few things here. The Lord considered Isaac Abraham's only son. Did you see that? Take your son, your only son. But you guys who read your Bibles know that Abraham had another son. His name was Ishmael. He had been born about 14 years earlier. He was born to Hagar, a concubine, when Abraham and Sarah decided God wasn't getting the job done, so we're going to take things into our own hands. You ever do that? Take things into your own hands to try to accomplish the thing that God had promised. Oh, God promised it, but I have to do it. We know that's not the way it works. So they go, they go ahead and they have this child. It isn't Sarah's child. It's Hagar, her handmaid's child. And there's nothing wrong with the child, but this is not the child that God had promised. And isn't it interesting, when God refers to Isaac, he says, your only son. It's not that the other son didn't exist. It's just that the Lord considered Isaac Abraham's only son according to the promises. So even though Ishmael was there, he was not the son of promise. God does not recognize the works of our flesh. What do I mean by that? That is, when we do things for God, they amount to nothing. Well, what are we supposed to do, Pastor Tim? Allow God to do the work through you. Very different experience of God when you allow God to work through your life as opposed to working in your life to please God. Most of us, probably just about everyone here who's had an experience with some sort of religion knows that that's exactly what religion is. It's you and I, us, trying to do things for God. How does that work out? It never works out. And a lot of people are turned off to a relationship with God because of religion. I'm the least religious person in the room. I promise you. I grew up religious, but I found out very quickly that when I tried to do things for God, it always ended in disaster. When I opened up my heart to Jesus Christ and allowed God to work through my life, then things started to get done. But again, it wasn't me doing it. It was God working through my life. So when we approach God in that way, not trying to please God to earn his favor and establish a relationship, but allowing God into our hearts by faith to allow God to work through us, then then at that point we begin to understand the difference between a religion and a relationship. Amen? Well, that's what happens. And so Ishmael is kind of a symbol or a type of what happens when you take things in your own hands and try to do things for God. It doesn't work out well, and it didn't work out well. However, Isaac was the promised son of God, the work of the Spirit received by faith. And when God does a work by his Spirit, it is a work of faith, and it always turns out well. Now, when we look at the symbols, the typology, the symbolism in this scripture, and why we're here today to talk about Abraham and Isaac on Resurrection Sunday, is because it's important to know that Jesus is God's only son. And Jesus was promised to us and received by faith and not by works. There are lots of people trying to establish their relationship with God through sacraments, through keeping commandments, through being good or trying to be good. And it's not that those things aren't worthwhile and beautiful things. It's just that they can't establish the relationship that God wants to have with us. Religion is man reaching up. Relationship is God reaching down to us. 
And Jesus is that promised son. And so Isaac is symbol, a symbol, a type of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, Isaac was also, in addition to being the only son, he was Abraham's beloved son. Did you see that? It says here, God says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, you might look at that and you might think, well, of course, fathers love their sons. That's no big thing. Except that this is the very first time in the Bible the word love is used. And it's the love between a father and a son. Very first time. I think that's significant. I really do. Because you see, the scripture tells us in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, in verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? So that's the love of God, such for the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But the love between a father and a son is the beginning of all love that mankind experiences. And it's mentioned here first in the Bible. And then the Lord also called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in a particular place or region on a mountain. The place is called Moriah. It's It's a vast area in and around Jerusalem. It's a mountain range, not just a mountain. It's a mountain range. And it's near Jerusalem. But notice that God directed Abraham to this specific place of sacrifice near Jerusalem. We'll come back to that. Well, the Lord had promised Abraham that Isaac would live. What do I mean? Well, for one thing, the promise was that he would have many descendants through this only son, Isaac. So how could, you know, answer this in your heart, how could Isaac die and still give birth to descendants such that Abraham would have descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. There's only one possible way that could happen, that if he was indeed sacrificed, he would be raised to life to be able to live and fulfill the promises of God. Now, Abraham's a man who's learned to trust God through hard times, through difficult times. And he's trusted God with the impossible. So for him at this point, after 25 years of trusting God, for him, this is not a stretch. For everyone else here, I'm sure we would never be able to trust in that situation. But remember, he had been prepared. He had trusted God through impossible circumstances, and now he's being called to put that faith into action and believe despite his circumstances. That's what faith is. It's being able to trust God in the midst of challenging, difficult, impossible, questionable circumstances. And so, take your son to Moriah. Sacrifice your only son whom you love. Well, let's read verses 3 through 4. Early the next morning we read, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, and he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Did you miss that pronoun? People are all caught up in pronouns today. I hope you haven't missed that pronoun. We will come back to you. Did you hear that? Say amen. We will come back to you. So you see, Abraham already had this understanding. He could trust God. They're coming back. He's coming back. And you see that in the text. You see that in the language. There's a few other things I want to point out in the language as well. For one thing... 
They set out with two servants for how many days? Tell me. You're not convincing me. How many days? Three days. Sound familiar? Yeah, three days. And I think there's a point. I think there's a reason for the symbolism. I think it points us, as, as we've said before, to the future, our past, when Christ would be sacrificed for our sins, die and be raised again after three days. But it's three days. It's a symbol. It's a signpost. It points us to the truth of the fulfillment of this scripture, which is both prophetic and historical. Also, there's a word that's used in the Hebrew. It's the word and, and his son Isaac. And and when you look at the grammar, it is quite significant. It doesn't really come out in English, but it indicates that Abraham was determined. He was determinedly deliberate. He was going. It wasn't a question of going reluctantly. He got up the next morning and said, let's go. You know when you were getting your kids in the car today? And you're thinking, we're not going to be that family who's late to church on Easter Sunday. I noticed a lot of you guys who have little struggles with that. You were here today. I just want to give you kudos. I didn't take names in the back. But you're getting into your car and you think, let's go. That's the language. You understand that now. Let's go. And that's the heart of Abraham. And you can imagine under these circumstances that that would not have been the reaction or the sentiment that most of us would have had if we were told to take the child we love to a mountain and sacrifice him. But you see, it's more than that. Abraham has learned to trust God. It shows that he proceeded without hesitation. That's the point. And in Abraham's mind, remember this, in his mind, Isaac was considered dead for these three days. Because for three days, he's going to a place, in his mind and in his heart, his son has to die. And that symbol bears out into the New Testament. Well, Abraham had learned to believe in the promises of God. He truly believed that God would resurrect Isaac if necessary. And he knew that Isaac would return from the dead to fulfill God's promises. We've covered that already. But he clearly testified to this truth. And I'm going to just read a scripture for you in the book of Hebrews from the New Testament, recapping this event in chapter 11, verse 17. We read that by faith, by faith, say it with me, by faith, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had received the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be blessed or reckoned. Abraham reasoned, in verse 19, that God could raise the dead. And figuratively, notice figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So this is not something I'm coming up with or making up. This is the teaching of the New Testament on the Old Testament. And it shows us that the heart of Abraham was being tested, but that he trusted God by faith. So, where does this leave us? Well, remember this, that in the New Testament, we not only see the book of Hebrews telling us this truth, Paul also taught the resurrection of Jesus, and he said it, was according to the scriptures. Now, here, here's the thing that's, that, that's important to remember. What scriptures? What scriptures taught the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? 
Well, there are some prophecies, but this is one of those scriptures that teaches it. By example, by proxy, through symbolism, we see the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ taught. Now it begins to make sense. What in the world was God doing? He was acting out the truth of the resurrection. And because God is to be trusted, there really should have never been any concern in the heart of Abraham that he would actually have to put his son to death. But it's a picture. It's a symbol. It teaches us something. But even if he did, he knew that he could raise him from the dead. That's what we're told. And of course, Jesus knew that he himself would return from the dead and said so in John's gospel. It's important to know this. At no point did Jesus wonder whether or not he would die, and there was no point at which he would wonder whether he would be raised from the dead. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said this. He said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Now, only to take it up again, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my father. So you see, Jesus was not confused. Jesus knew what he would experience in this world, in this life. And he knew from the scriptures as well exactly what would happen. Now, I don't know that the people at the time really understood that this scripture in Genesis pointed to that, but it was easy to figure that out afterward. And that's why we're looking at it today. So now let's look at the rest of this section. In verses 6 through 14, we'll see how things go. In verse 6, we read, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. And Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Don't think that he's lying here. It's true, and we'll see that's exactly what happens. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar and on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the messenger of Jehovah, or the angel of the Lord, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I mean, I kind of think you'd have to be blind not to see how this points to the cross and the tomb, how it, how it points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To me, it's very obvious, but I think when you look at it, you see that God is constantly teaching us through circumstances, through accounts through the history of the Jews and the Israelites and other peoples. And this is no exception. Let's look a little bit more closely. Verse 6. Notice Abraham placed the burden on his son, who carried it willingly. A burden of wood on the son who carried it willingly. This is a picture of the wooden Christ of Christ, uh, wooden, wooden cross of Christ. It is that picture, the burden 
that was placed upon him. Now here it's wood. It's still wood, but it points us to the truth that would happen and that we celebrate today. The wooden cross of Christ. Now, of course, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, the book of Hebrews says. How about this? Abraham trusted that God would provide himself as the necessary sacrifice. There's almost a little word play in there. God would provide himself, and he did provide himself by sending his son. But he would provide himself. He would provide the lamb, Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God, whom John the Baptist pointed to at his baptism and said, Behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. The symbolism continues. Isaac, by the way, and this is, this is because of English. English says boy. And we have the pictures, the paintings, the artwork, the Bible stories. And we always imagine this horrific story. And some of our kids are with us today. So, you know, don't think your parents are going to get any ideas here. But then we see this picture of a loving parent taking this little boy to an altar to prepare him for sacrifice. And it's horrific. Part of the problem with that picture is that's not entirely true. You see, Isaac may have been as much as 30 to 33 years old. What? what, what? Yeah. Interesting. How old was Christ when he gave his life for us? Roughly the same age. He could have resisted his elderly father. He could have, easily. You see, the Hebrew word for boy, na'ar, simply means an unmarried man. And we assume an unmarried man is a boy, but that's not a correct assumption. So there's been a little bit lost in the translation here to understand if you look at the chronology, it's easily, that, it's easily possible that he was as much as 33 years old. Now, why is that important? Because it changes the narrative. It, the whole picture is different now. It's not a little child being sacrificed against his will. It's a young man offering his life. You see, that's the important picture that gets lost. This speaks of Christ's willing sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was bound to the cross by his own free will. Remember, we read it. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. And at some point in this process, Isaac figured out where's the sacrifice. He certainly would have figured it out when his father is binding him and laying him down on the sacrifice. Does he flee? Does he run? Does he resist? No. Well, of course we know God had no intention of having Abraham sacrifice Isaac. However, there was a day, many years later, 2,000 years ago, where that exact scenario was acted out and the son was put to death. But he rose again because he is risen. So the angel of the Lord... The angel of the Lord intervened to save Isaac from certain death. Abraham was ready to go through with this command. One of the things we've seen, and and we did a study during COVID when we were kind of stuck in our houses. Some of you guys logged on. We were studying on the Zoom platform that I love so much. That's sarcasm. And we were looking at all of the occurrences of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And we found this out. We found out that the angel of the Lord means the messenger of Jehovah. And in these circumstances, he's not just another angel. He's the messenger of Jehovah. I'll give you another title in the New Testament, the word of God. 
the messenger of Jehovah, the word of God. When you analyze and look at all of the scriptures that point to the messenger of Jehovah, the word of God, you find something out. He speaks as God. He acts as God. He's divine. He's not a created being. So what in the world is this all about? Well, you see, we know our God is both Father and Son and Holy Spirit, of course. We know that the relationship that God has with us It's based on the fact that he's three in one. He's three persons, one God, right? So in the Old Testament, you have pictures of a very human God. There are times where we're told you can't see God. You saw him, you die. And then there are times where God sits down and has a meal with Abraham. So what is that all about? How is it possible that both of those things can be true? Well, because God the Father... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in heaven beyond our understanding. But yes, Jesus did act and interact with his people, those people of faith in the old covenant, and he acted in human form. Notice I didn't say human flesh. That didn't happen yet. But human form, flesh came later, human form. And as he interacted, we see the angel of the Lord many, many times, Speak with divine authority as God. Speaking as God in the first person. The messenger of Jehovah, the word of God, the angel of the Lord, is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, dealing with mankind again before he took on human flesh. So isn't that interesting? Here you have the very picture of Jesus when he would come and die on the cross and be raised to life. The very picture, and that picture is interrupted. It's stopped by the word of God himself. Why? Because Isaac wasn't called to die on the cross or on that wood or be sacrificed for our sins. The word of God, Jesus Christ, who is the word of God, was called. So the picture is complete. It's fulfilled, however, only in picture, not in practice. It actually hasn't happened yet in the life of Abraham and Isaac. But we are fortunate enough to live at a time where that has happened in the past. And we understand he did come. He did die on the cross for our sins. He did. He was resurrected. He did rise from the dead. It is a truth. It's a fundamental truth of Christianity. In fact, without it, as Bill shared in the announcements when he opened up, if it's not true, then why are we here today? Now, listen, if you're visiting, we're glad you're here. But the whole purpose of gathering, actually, let's go a step further. The purpose of coming together every Sunday, every Wednesday, and throughout the week as a church is to celebrate this truth of the resurrection. And if he wasn't dead and he didn't rise from the dead, why are we here? Oh, listen, it's great. I love being here. It's a great place to be. We have a church family. It's a wonderful place to be. And while we won't have coffee hour today because it's Easter Sunday, I know some of you guys, it's where you go, ah. Oh. Don't worry, we, coffee has an important place in our lives. We understand that. So if you need a cup of coffee, you can get one in our coffee room. But please don't go downstairs to the fellowship hall because we're not setting that up today out of consideration for you and your families and our staff being able to get to their Easter dinner. But understand something. If that is not true, if Christ didn't die, if he wasn't raised from the dead, Why are we here, really? Why are we here? Well, verse 13. We'll finish up 
verse 13, it says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram. That is a male lamb. The plot thickens. Caught by its horns, and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son, which, by the way, was the practice of the people at that time. Animal sacrifice was how they worshipped God. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, or in the original language, Jehovah Jireh. And to this day it is said, what? A prophecy? Yep, a prophecy. To this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. See, the prophecy comes after the picture. The picture comes before the prophecy. The prophecy tells us what would happen. I've got one more for you. A few more, actually. The Lord provided salvation for Isaac through a substitutionary blood sacrifice. Fancy word, propitiation for your sins. Idea that something died so that you wouldn't. How about this? Abraham is looking forward to Christ's ultimate sacrifice for us. By the way, Jehovah Jireh, it indicates the Lord will provide, but it literally means God sees. God sees. The Lord is going to provide because God sees. He knows your needs. There is no difference between vision and provision with God. Because God knows what you have need of before you ask. Now, through history... All were waiting for God's provision to be seen in a specific place because of this prophecy in the mountain of the Lord it will be seen. Where was that specific place? Mount Moriah. I told you that was a mountain range. Abraham was told to take Isaac to the region of Moriah and to a mountain I will show you. Now, a couple of things you need to know about the mountain range called Moriah. Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. Calvary, or Golgotha, means a place of the skull because it was a mountain where they had mined. And when you looked at it, even if you look at it today, uh, you will see the places where they've taken the rock away. And so it looks sort of like a skull. That's why they were calling it Calvary, or Golgotha. It really kind of means the place of the skull. But it's actually the peak of Mount Moriah, the very place where Jesus was crucified. How is that possible? Because the prophecy follows the picture. The picture anticipates and precedes the prophecy, and the prophecy predicts the future. You see, on this Mount Moriah, that was the very place. Now, I can't say it was the exact place with any specificity. I don't know. But it seems to me rather peculiar that in the very place, at least in the exact region where Christ was crucified, there was an, a play acted out which spoke of this exact and precise event. See, God was trying to tell us when this would happen, our needs would be met. Jesus died on Calvary's cross on Mount Moriah to save us from our death sentence. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all imperfect. The wages of sin is death. And so Christ provided himself. God sent his son And in dying for us, as we sang today and as we've seen today in the study in the Word, provided the way of life for those who acknowledge that they need God, who acknowledge that they're sinners, who acknowledge that they need a Savior, a substitutionary death in their place for all those who acknowledge that life is promised, an eternal life. Because he rose again after three days 
to bring us that newness of life. Amen? And all of this was according to the scripture recorded here in the book of Genesis. He is risen. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. You were so gracious to us. You sent your son to die in our place, told us it would happen, pictured it, prophesied it, and then brought it to to be in our hearts and in our lives because you're good, because you love us, and we thank you. And there's no pressure for anyone to respond to this truth. It's a choice. It's a free will choice that we have to put our faith in you, to acknowledge you, to have a relationship, not a religion, a relationship with you by faith. Lord, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for everyone here. We thank you for our friends and family. We thank you for this glorious day you've given us. And we ask that now as we close this service, our hearts would be steadfastly meditating on the truth that we've absorbed through your word today, through these words and through these songs. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.